Hello, and Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today on the show, we will be talking about Ad Astra and the career of its star, Brad Pitt. Sad and Astra. I'm, you got the name wrong again. I will accept Sad Astra, Dad Astra, or Brad Astra. <laughs> Um, I'm very excited to talk about Ad Astra. I was really taken with this movie. And and so I, I, we won't go into to spoilers, but I will say that this is the film. I need to check its cinema score because it's not the film that it was sold as. I knew it wasn't the film it was being sold as, and it definitely is not that. I was seeing the trailers. I'm like, James Gray didn't make a thriller. No. He doesn't do, he didn't do that. And he didn't. He made what is essentially a mashup of 2001 and Apocalypse Now. It does have some action scenes in it. Like, there really is a chase on the moon with moon pirates, and it's great. But the film is not about that. The film is really about masculinity and finding human connection and what do we do when in an in an empty like how do we bring meaning to a meaningless universe basically and those are very heavy themes and dads and dads yes and dads of course but i think but you know the dad stuff i think ties into the masculinity stuff yeah um it's not just daddy issues the film it really does have a specific take on the shortcomings of stoic masculinity and i think james gray really just sort of he did a great job of bundling it all together. And yeah, if the, if you went in thinking moon pirates, like that's a scene, but that's not this movie. And I, I, I'm not like the biggest James gray fan. I run very hot and cold on his movies. I I really like two lovers. I do not like the immigrant. Uh, I still haven't gotten around to saying lost city of Z yet. Um, I didn't really like we own the night, but you know, I, I was really taking, he had a, I felt that the direction and the storytelling of Ad Astra were very confident and very, they, I knew it was going to be kind of a slow picture. I wasn't surprised by that, but I was engaged with it the whole time, uh, especially because it's, it's craft is incredible. I, I highly recommend seeing it in IMAX or, or Dolby, something where you can really f- feel immersed in uh, Hoyt Van Hotema's cinematography and the, and the sound design. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It, I think we're just to to lay out the game plan. I think we're also going to be talking about the filmography of Brad Pitt on this podcast as well. Yeah, um, digging into uh, his films. Uh, but yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm not like a massive James Gray super fan. Uh, the Immigrant, I I thought was pretty good. Uh, I loved Lost City of Z, and so that kind of made me a little more excited for Ad Astra because I felt like on Lost City of Z, he was going to a larger canvas. But he's definitely a filmmaker who makes movies about people in rooms talking, and by and large, talking about things that aren't like super plot driven or um like action centric action meaning like people actually doing stuff uh it's kind of a little bit more philosophical in tone and i thought lost city of z towed the line between that and something a little bit more um physical uh really well and if you haven't seen that movie you absolutely should charlie hunnam's performance is terrific as is robert pattinson's uh it's about explorers um so I was, and it's originally a film that that he wanted Brad Pitt to star in, but Brad Pitt was like, "I don't really want to be in the jungle for six months." Yeah, it was. I don't remember exactly why that casting didn't work out. Uh, I think scheduling was part of it as well. 
Um, but Ad Astra, I mean, I, I thought Ad Astra was based on a book. It's not. It's an original story um, written by James Gray and Ethan Gross. And it imagines this this future world uh, in a really interesting way. We don't actually see a ton of Earth. Um, there, uh, there are settlements on the moon. Um but they're not super like delineated, which is why you get moon pirates because uh, it's kind of like the wild west up there. Um, and there are also facilities on Mars, which is really cool. So you essentially have Brad Pitt's character journaling, journeying through the solar system. His destination is is ultimately Mars, but no, no, his de- well, yes, his destination, his destination. Is, is ultimately Mars. I, but yeah. his dad was last seen around Neptune, and so mm-hmm. there is the possibility of maybe he's going to go uh, out to Neptune and figure out what's going on out there. So it kind of gives you an opportunity to have this kind of journey through the solar system, all while uh, Brad Pitt's character is having this own journey through his soul. Um, comparisons have been made to Apocalypse Now and 2001, uh, which I'd say are apt. I think it's a little more Apocalypse Now than 2001. Um, in terms of the journey aspect of it, but instead of this kind of external Colonel Kurtz character, um, it, it's it's his dad, it's his own dad yeah. who. Well, and you know when I, I I did the junket for for Ad Astra, when I spoke to James Gray on the red carpet, he said that the genesis of this story was uh, the Odyssey told from the perspective of Odysseus's son Telemachus. Oh, okay. And when I, when I heard that, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense (laughs) because the idea is like your dad has got like, you know, we read the Odyssey and, and Odysseus is going on these grand adventures, you know, he's fighting the Cyclops and, you know, and he's, uh, you know, meet, you know, you know, lashing himself to the mask with, you know, to, to listen to the Zyrens, but what's Talamachus up to? And like, what is that like when your dad is like, and in this film, um, Tommy Lee Jones plays, uh, the father of Brad Pitt's character, and Tommy Lee Jones is his mission. This uh, Lima project that he's been on is what it's called. As he uh, uh, is meant to find extraterrestrial life. That's the idea to find intelligent life in the galaxy. And the reason that he went up to Neptune is so that there won't be solar interference. By the way, if you go into Ad Astra and be like, I want to criticize science, you're doing movies wrong. <laughs> Sorry. You fucked up at movies. (laughs) This is very, very true. Um, Yeah. Well, and that's kind of one of the things that I really liked about it is that I think that the world building of it is really tremendous because you buy into all of it. And none of – there's no – I mean I'm sure there is room for nitpicking if you're bored by the story, but I was not. Um, And I I just thought like, you know – uh, the whole trip to the moon, like, is a very—it's a commercial flight, which is really cool, and and the whole way that that is put together, I think, is really fun. And then you get to the moon, and it's not a film that, like, you know, it's like, oh, let's follow Brad Pitt, go into this subway. It's just there exists a subway on, like, a subway restaurant on the moon, and it's just all part of kind of the window dressing of this world to kind of help you buy into it. And then once you get to Mars, Mars is a very different kind of planet with a very different kind of human element to it um, that is also very cool. So uh, that aspect of it I liked a lot, and and you mentioned the craft. I think the craft in this film is is really tremendous. Hoitebe and Hoitema, um, who first came to prominence for me uh, by shooting her, but he also shot Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, and then it'd be for after Wally Pfister left to go and direct uh, his own movies, which turned out to be one movie called Transcendence. And then after that, uh, I think he's just been directing on The Tick and some other TV stuff. Um, 
but his first one with Nolan was Interstellar, I believe. Uh, and then he also shot Dunkirk, and I think he shot the upcoming, uh, what is it called, Tenet, his next movie. Um, I'm pretty sure he's shot yeah. that. Yeah. So, and he also shot Spectre. Um, he's a really impressive cinematographer. Interstellar was very much like nuts and bolts, like very science fact. And this movie uh, allows Hote Van Hotema to get a little bit more abstract and a little uh, kind of painterly with his use of color, which I really liked. I think it might be my favorite work of his since Her, which I think is a really tremendously shot film and lit. I think the colors in that movie are really uh, terrific. Um, but there, he plays with color a lot, which I think helps delineate some of these worlds like the moon and like Mars and like the spaceships. Um, and then also, you know, just in bringing space to life, it's, it's this kind of terrifying abyss. Um, and then obviously what Gray is doing in terms of, uh, actually bringing it to life and the production design, I really like the score as well, uh, by Max Richter. And I think Lauren Balf also worked on it, who did uh, mission impossible fallout. So just from a pure craft level, I was really really wowed by this movie um and uh you know i I was kind of expecting something akin to interstellar going in and i think it's very much not that no i the thing i i'm struck by is how much i i mean i saw this film like almost two weeks ago or a week ago gosh time is (laughs) fucked up um i saw the film a week ago but i still haven't really been able to stop thinking about it um, just because I really like what it's doing thematically and what it's how it approaches its story and how it's very careful in the way it's telling its story. And I think there are like there's the occasional misstep and I can't really get into what it is because spoilers. But I would say that on the whole, the film just works perfectly because it has a very clear sense of, I think, juxtaposing the majesty of space along with sort of these close ups of Brad Pitt. Um, his character Roy McBride and sort of his internal monologue and sort of you have sort of this grandeur of the cosmos mirrored against uh, this character who kind of prides himself on being emotionally remote and how he doesn't even get his heart rate up even the most stressful moments and yet that stoicism is, has driven people away and left him alone and you know really kind of searching after this father figure uh, that has been absent and I think it's just a really gorgeous way to tell this story and use that sign of sci-fi story. And, and I like the fact that um, they were that this film even exists. I, I really am impressed with, I know that like, and we'll talk about Brad Pitt as an actor, but I, I want to talk about a little bit about Brad Pitt as a producer and the guy who, who works to get these kind of movies made. Um, and not just, you know, the ones that star him, but, you know, other difficult projects. And I was just really impressed. Um, You know, I think in a way they got away with something here because this is a mid range budget film. I I think it probably cost about 60 to 80 million. It actually cost 80 to a hundred, 80 to a hundred. So they definitely got away with something (laughs) Fox paid for. I mean, they got, you know, plan B and, you know, it was going to be released through Fox and then Fox, you know, got bought by Disney. Disney would never make this. No, 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 no. Not in a million. And to me, that's the thing. Like, that's what's been lost. That's another thing that's being lost when you have Disney in charge. Like, Disney will give you all the Marvel movies and, you know, remakes of animated films and Star Wars all damn day. But if you would like a movie about a guy wrestling with the legacy of his father and sort of, in, you know, an uncaring universe and what that means and, like, being able to really think and chew on that, 
Disney has nothing for you. And I think that's a shame because I think Fox, you know, the thing is, is Fox had these flops. They were making, but they were still making good films. Like Bad Times at the El Royale is a good film. Widows is a good film. Uh, The Hate You Give is a good film. Like these are good movies that, you know, for what I, I would say, Fox's marketing department was not up to snuff. I mean, the fact that they were like, Widows is a prestige picture. And I'm like, you can get to that later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but let people know it's fucking fun, yeah. man. Like, Widows is a blast. And like, they were like, no, it is prestigious. And no one fucking saw it. And like, I guess it's with that a, after, they're like, which is uh, like tonally very similar to Widows, but was marketed as a blast and they made a lot of money. Right, exactly. And, like, look, I guess the flip side is, like, they're marketing Ad Astra as a blast, and it's not that. (laughs) But at the same time, it's just, like, I feel like Ad Astra is a movie for adults who like mature science fiction. And honestly, if a film like Arrival can be a hit, like, Arrival is is mature sci-fi for adults, and Arrival made money, um, it it can be done. Um, And I'm just, I'm bummed out that... uh, you know, we're not, I think we don't get more films like Ad Astra. I, not to say that this is the end of the adult uh, drama, but it's, there's one fewer studio making. Them. Yeah, you can say Fox has autonomy under Disney, but they do to a point. And if Fox says, hey, James Gray, that guy who made Lost City of Z and The Immigrant came to us with this idea about uh, a guy in space, uh, you know, and he gets very philosophical or whatever. Uh, can we make this? Disney would probably either say no outright or yeah, sure, but you're going to have to do it for like $30 million. And that's just probably not going to happen. And so, yeah, I agree. This movie doesn't happen under the the Disney ownership of Fox. And I would throw um, movies like Red Sparrow and A Cure for Wellness under that umbrella of Fox movies that didn't make a lot of money but were pretty bold and different and uh, were uh, just trying different stuff. So it takes one more studio out of the running. You know, if James Gray can't get it made at Disney Fox, uh, that's one less studio he could go to. And, you know, who knows if Sony or Paramount is going to say yes, probably not. Um, so that's a bummer. And then the movie doesn't exist. And the movie that exists, I think, is is really ambitious and impressive. I've heard, like, the rumors that a potentially like there were issues in post-production and it may not entirely be James Gray's full vision, but I still think that I, I mean, I liked it a lot and I think that it's a, I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, I asked him because I was, someone told me who will remain unnamed that the original cut of, at Astra was much longer. And I, so I asked James Gray, I heard this cut was much longer. He's like, no, <laughs> it was, it was, it was like maybe originally like two ten, and we got it down to, 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 you know, two hours with credits. <laughs> so, you know, like it's, I, I don't know like how much tinkering there yeah. was. It's a, it seems like a film that's, you know, there are some films where you can feel the yeah. edit. You're like, huh, that's strange. At Astra, I never really got that. It felt like his vision from start to finish. Yeah, it it did feel slightly more commercialized for a James Gray movie mm. um, than normal, especially having seen Lost City of Z, which you would think like, oh, this is going to be really commercial, but it's really not. Um, but uh, the only thing I've seen him say is that the ending isn't exactly what he wanted. The ending, the ending does feel a little sort of let's, Let's make people. The ending was a reshoot and it was supposed to end at a point, maybe like two or three minutes before the film actually ends now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. 
that and that honestly, I can see that 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 yeah. I buy. But the stuff with like the Moon Pirates and uh, the other, there's some other other set beats set pieces yeah. kind of. And I feel like those set pieces tell their own story. Like they're in a way that sort of like the the those set pieces, their violence says something about human violence and the the nature of human violence. And I think they, they, they don't feel random. Like, Oh, I'm losing them. Better, better throw the audience yeah. a bone. They feel thematically connected to the story, to the larger. Film. Well, and what you said about masculinity, I think was one of the more potent themes um, for me, at least uh, in watching this movie. And there's a moment um, before one of those set pieces uh, where uh, Brad Pitt is on a ship to, I think it's on the ship to the moon or maybe it's the ship to Mars. Um, no, it's the ship to Mars. Uh, and there's a distress call and he's watching, you know, the, the crew debate, like who's going to go out and, um, check out this distress call. And the co-pilot, uh, is, is visibly like, you know, he's, he's trying to act macho, but Brad Pitt's narration says he's scared. He recognizes in this man that this man is scared, but this man who is co-piloting this ship cannot show that he's fearful cannot show that he has concerns has to keep a straight face but it's brad pitt clocking because the entire the narration for the whole film and i've seen some people say that they hate the narration they think it's stupid um i think it's absolutely vital to the film because brad pitt is having this inner monologue you know outwardly he's projecting the stoicism and his heart rate never rises but internally he's starting to think over and consider all of the values and um personality traits that his father instilled in him and what is expected of a man and what is what he is expected to do versus how he feels he what he feels he wants to do or how he feels at uh at a minute and so it's kind of that push and pull between emotions and uh basically quote unquote manliness and i i was really struck by that by him recognizing in this other man that he is scared, but he's not outwardly showing that he's scared and he's not going to say he, he won't go out and check that distress call, but he's, he's clocking it. He's understanding like men have these feelings too. And, and yet we outwardly have to pretend like everything's fine and nothing, uh, nothing scares us. You know, nothing is insurmountable and we're supposed to just kind of go at it full force. Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about toxic masculinity, what we mean is something usually we're referring to like aggressive, overbearing behavior, anger, controlling, domination. And yet an idealized version of masculinity is stoicism, you know, the strong, silent type who doesn't show emotions. And Ad Astra is taking issue with that. It's like, why is that? our aspiration of what man of what masculinity should be. It's one thing to be like, Oh, we still, you know, aspire to be the Gary Cooper type, the strong silent type. And Ad Astra says that what that does, that stoicism may seem cool and it may seem controlled and it may even have its place, but it also prevents you from being honest. It prevents you from having human connections and it ultimately makes you, more alone in a universe where we're already alone. So is it really the best philosophy for life? Yeah, that's uh, And I really enjoyed the arc of the film and how it, it tracks that because it was honestly a bit surprising to me to see how that gets addressed uh, throughout the film because, and 
you know, it's it's weird. There are other characters in this movie, and yet I, I felt a similarity to Gravity and Castaway, in which Tom Hanks mm. and Sandra Bullock are, for large stretches of those films, the only characters on screen. Because Brad Pitt is technically has other people to talk to and is technically surrounded by people, but there's an intense loneliness to the character. Um, and through that narration, you can see that he is at odds with himself. He's wrestling with himself, wrestling with the ideas of his father, uh, wrestling the, with the relationship with his father and the expectations that were put upon him. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily think that's a detriment. I mean, you could look at this movie. So, uh, I mean, Liv Tyler and Ruth Nega are technically in this movie, but they do not have very many lines at all. Also, uh, technically in this movie, Natasha Leone for one scene. <laughs> because she's buddies with is James Gray. I love it. That's funny. That's true. They, she is, she, they were That's neighbors. Funny. And so like, they used to like have dinner together and she's like, I'd love to be in your movies. And eventually this part came up and yeah, Slate has a great article <laughs> about why, why she's only in one scene of the movie. It's because she's buddies. That's with James funny. Gray. Um, but yeah, people could say like, oh, you know, the female characters are underrepresented in this film, but it's not really like Brad Pitt's character, McBride, uh, is really the only character that quote unquote matters because it is this personal journey that he's having. Yeah, we're not really digging into Lauren Dean's character either, no, folks. No, no. Or I mean, Donald Sutherland does a lot with a little here. I I, I, uh, I felt his performance was pretty impactful. Um Mm-hmm. But but yeah, this is a very personal journey for that character. And Gray himself has admitted that at the time they were shooting this movie was around the time that Brad Pitt was going through the divorce and custody battle with his family. And Gray has admitted that, you know, he didn't want to speak out of turn, but said that Brad Pitt brought a lot of his own internal anguish to this role and a lot of his personal life to this role. Uh, Pitt himself having owed up to, uh, you know, being raised in the Ozarks with a father who was very demanding and very um, kind of traditional in terms of masculinity. And uh, really the the emotional scars that that leaves and, and has left on an entire generation of men. Um, and it's, it's, you know, you, you brought up other things, other performances this reminded you of. For me, it reminded me of another pit performance, which was Tree of Life. Yeah. And that sort of, you know, what is masculinity? What does it mean to be a strong person? But without the mother, father, always you wrestle inside <laughs> Although me. not too far off with some of the narration. Not too far <laughs> off, but not as heavy handed. <laughs> uh, I like that movie. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is one of Pitt's best roles. And you... Uh, you clocked it right on when you said that this is only to the fact that it, it makes Ryan Gosling's performance in first man look like wildly animated. There is a similar, <laughs> and, and I think Ryan Gosling put gave it one of the best way. performances of the year in first man, but it's not one of those quote unquote most acting uh, performances. Yeah. The Academy will never notice that. And that's not a debt. That doesn't speak poorly of this performance. It just speaks to what the Academy does and does not yeah. notice. Well, and, and I think also, not unlike Pitt's other movie this year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's working with a director here who understands Brad Pitt. And this is a movie mm-hmm. – I mean, movie stars are dead, basically. Uh, they don't exist. Well, Franchises exist. I will say that the business of – I would say two things. Movie stars do exist, but their bankability does not. Sure. That's true. Both, both things can be true. <laughs> but what I was getting at kind of is that like you cannot see Brad Pitt in a movie and not immediately clock that's Brad Pitt and not be mm. aware that it is Brad Pitt while you're watching the movie the whole time pretty much. Uh, and the same is true of Tom Cruise who has essentially just given up pretense of trying to play other people uh, and just kind of leans into his action persona now. 
um, which is fine. And I think that is it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would love to see him do another. Match. I would love to see him do drama yeah. again, but that's our different. That's a different podcast that we've already yeah. done. Listen to yeah, it, folks. Listen to our on. American Made podcast. Um, but I think that 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 movie star status, that iconography can be used to the benefit of a film if the director knows how to do it. I think that was true in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that was true with Moneyball, um, with Bennett Miller. Um, the And using kind of that stoicism and that now, especially as Brad Pitt has gotten older, kind of the wistfulness in his eyes and using it to your advantage in the film. And I think that I think that's something that... Uh, is really special about this movie. I think the directors who really fail with Brad Pitt are the ones who just see him as a pretty yeah. face. Um, if you're just like, Oh, Brad Pitt is handsome. Then you get, you know, seven years in Tibet or you get meet Joe black or you get even recently allied. Yeah. Um, if you're just like, he is a handsome and he is, he is a handsome man, but I think the thing that the, the directors who get the better performances out of him are the ones who don't look, who either they're like, yes, he is attractive, but they're more interested in his acting ability. And uh, BuzzFeed had a good article recently around the time of Once Upon a Time, which is that he is a character actor trapped in a movie star's body. And what that meant is that he is really better in supporting roles that let him sort of branch out and play against, you know, expectations, really. Um, that don't really have him as your t- typical leading man. And I think the more you try to push Brad Pitt into like sort of a leading man kind of box, the more he pushes against it. And really the, the his best roles are like here, like with Ad Astra, where he is playing a stoic sort of introspective character who just is very internal and very doesn't like you just have to read it on his face and that's not to say that he can't also give you a fun big performance as well as he does in once upon a time in hollywood which i don't you know big it's not certainly not as big as something like 12 monkeys but it's something a little more charismatic like he has that charisma he can give you that you know he can charm an audience but I think you, you know, he's not just like, oh, he's a pretty face. We'll put on the mark on the poster. He's got a lot more going on than that. And I think that really makes him, um, you know, not just a movie star, but I think really a, an underestimated talent um, who's typically pegged as just a movie star when really he's a great actor. Yeah, he was kind of uh, kind of floating around really kind of unsure of. Hollywood was a little unsure of what to do with him aside from just making him a pretty face with movies like Seven Years in Tibet and Legends of the Fall and even Interview with the Vampire, which I liked a lot. Um, but it's very much like, oh, he's Louis is very pretty. Um, and, uh, you know, Pitt has said his, his career, and I think he said in your interview, which is a very good interview, um, his. Thank you. I thought it went. I thought it went okay, but <laughs> thank you. you well, I think know. it was in your interview where he said that you know Fincher changed his changed his life. Working with Fincher changed the the course of his career, and that was Seven was the first time they worked together. Um, mm-hmm. And Seven didn't quite shake the the persona, but it allowed him the opportunity to play a really complicated, different kind of character. Um, as opposed as opposed to like you know he had previously been doing like Cool World and A River Runs Through It. Um, and Legends of the Fall. And then directly after Seven, he does 12 Monkeys and gets his first Oscar nomination. Uh, and that 12 Monkeys performance is really surprising and really different. I think really showcased a different side of him for audiences. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the more I think the more Brad Pitt sort of moves into what would be, you know, quote unquote, dangerous roles or roles that are just not typical or stories that aren't typical, the better his performance is. And that's not to say that Brad Pitt only works outside the mainstream because he's a fun actor. Like his performance in the Oceans movies are always really yeah. fun. They're great. Um, like, in Ocean, like in Oceans 13 where he puts on the fake mustache, he's like, no, twisted <laughs> ape of steel and glass. That's what you don't want. <laughs> you know, it's like, like he just, he knows how to have fun with it. Like he's not someone who like takes himself so seriously that he can't, you know, branch out and, and get a laugh from an audience. But I also think that he's someone who is keenly aware of what a movie is trying to do and what he can bring to it. And like in that interview, the thing that really jumped out at me is that Brad Pitt genuinely loves movies. Like he doesn't, it's not just like, it's one thing. It's like, yes, he is rich and famous and handsome and God damn it. <laughs> you know, stay out of knowing movies, Brad, that's my territory. <laughs> but you know, he genuinely, like he is excited to talk about cinematographers. And like in that interview, when we talked about assassination of Jesse James, you know, he's like, it's a film about celebrity, which it absolutely is. And yes, obviously as a celebrity, he understands that, but he also understood, oh, here's a film that's talking about it in a really interesting way. And not just like celebrities, a curse, blah, blah. Like it's actually a film that explores hero worship and its shortcomings. Um, and it's a film that it's an incredible film. Um, and so I think, you know, Brad Pitt is a, as a, he's kind of doing what I would, what, what you kind of would want a movie star to do, which is for me, if you were to play like a word association game and you said movie star, I would immediately say Brad Pitt to me. He is just synonymous with the term. And he has been for like a quarter of a century. He's been a movie star for 25 years, which is incredible longevity in this business. Yes. And, but I think what makes him stand apart is that he knows how to take interesting, challenging roles and he doesn't just rest on his laurels. Like he doesn't take, you know, he doesn't take the safe route. I think he is savvy about his career. I think World War Z was his like attempt to do a franchise and it didn't really work out for him. But he's also savvy enough to be like, I'm also going to make a film like Killing Them Softly, which people are going to hate, <laughs> but I want to do it. <laughs> and so I'm going to do it. Yeah, he started to kind of play with his persona. I remember it was a really huge deal when he was in Snatch, not because he was in a Guy Ritchie, uh, you know, crime indie, but because he was playing this weird supporting character. Like a weird supporting character who you can't understand. Yeah. And this was coming off uh, – so Snatch was 2000 uh, and like Meet Joe Black was 98. Seven Years in Tibet was 97. Fight Club was 99. Fight. Uh, and obviously Fight Club wasn't a success, but it was this big splashy movie um, in which he was the star. Uh, and, and so he takes that supporting role in Snatch and then he kind of uh, – I don't know. It seemed like he was a little unsure after that. I mean, he did The Mexican with Julia Roberts, which is kind of a twist on a rom-com. Um, and I think that's that's Gore Verbinski, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, it's a weird movie. I don't love it, but I love Gore Verbinski. Um, and then, like, Spy Game, I mean, you know, he was described as this generation's Robert Redford, so why not make a movie with Robert Redford? Uh and he starts to – I mean Ocean's Eleven – I don't think Ocean's Eleven gets enough credit for being weird enough. Like not necessarily weird, but the filmmaking of that movie is striking and ambitious. It's not – I mean it's slick, but it's in a slick Soderbergh way. It's not obvious. It's not this brightly lit commercial movie that has zingers after zingers. The comedy in that movie is a little arch 
um, and a little uh, offbeat and odd. Um, and I mean, now we know it as like, you know, this insanely successful film, but I think that's worth noting that like, you know, he signed on to this star studded movie, but they were not making some lazy film where the director was just going to get steamrolled by all these A-list personalities. And I think on that movie, the uh, Soderbergh had like a no asshole rule in terms of casting. Well, and, and Soderbergh for his part could demand it because he was coming off, you know, an, a, a winning best director. against himself. <laughs> Against himself. <laughs> like 2000 was a huge year for Steven Soderbergh. So yeah, he had that sort of flexibility and the, the way to sort of command respect. And also I think people like the, the people involved in Ocean's Eleven realized, oh wait, the original Ocean's Eleven were just ass, you know, famous people hanging out with each other and calling it a movie. Let's actually do that, but try. Yeah. Let's try. What, what if we actually tried? <laughs> Would that be good? And it, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's super good. And then after that, he didn't make it. But it's the fountain. He spent a long time developing the fountain, growing out this beard for Darren Aronofsky's big budget version of the fountain. And he dropped out. I don't remember exactly why. I know it was very traumatic. I remember reading some story about him calling Darren Aronofsky and just crying on the phone about not being able to do it. Um, But I think it was about him personally connecting with the material. And he does a 180 and does Troy, which is not a great film, but... Uh, you know, I I don't necessarily know what prompted that one. I don't know. I don't know either, but it it speaks to that. The more you try to cast Brad Pitt as just a handsome guy, the more the film works against you. Yeah, and I don't hate Troy. There are aspects of Troy that are... It's not the worst, but it should be better than it is. Yeah, and so, you know, then he kind of takes a little bit of a rake. He does Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but then that's, you know, that was when the personal life became... um, uh, well, Brad Pitt has always been tabloid. Yeah. It's just it got supercharged got, when you got when you put together one of the biggest actors in the world with one of the biggest actresses in the world. It was inevitable. yeah, and so he tries to do he does Babel, which is a bad movie. <laughs> it's a bad movie because Inurito is largely a bad yeah. director, and yet like you know that was him doing him trying to do an Oscar type movie. Um, but as you mentioned, I think crucial, possibly one of the most crucial films to his career and what really signals a turning point for him from kind of not aimlessly, but like going from like interesting movies like Ocean's Eleven to not really interesting movies like Troy is Assassination of Jesse James, um, which was a failure, uh, but he produced it. And and we can talk a bit more about his producing um, a little bit later, but this is around the time I think his first one of his first producerial efforts was The Departed. Um and then you produce Ryan Murphy's feature directorial debut, Running with Scissors, which no one remembers. But Assassination of Jesse James, he did produce and starred in. And that aspect of celebrity and commenting on celebrity, again, was coming on the heels of this Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Aniston stuff that was happening. And, I mean, after that movie, he just makes interesting choice after in- interesting choice. It's Burn After Reading, Benjamin Button, Inglorious Bastards, Tree of Life, Moneyball, uh, Killing Them Softly. And yeah, you have like a Mega Mind and a Happy Feet too. But he's he's said like he made those kind of movies to show a movie. Yeah, to his kid, basically. yeah. And continues to produce movies like Kick Ass and The Time Traveler's Wife um, to varying levels of success. But Bird After Reading, much like Snatched, is like he's just having fun with the Coen Brothers in a supporting role, which has the best one of the best exits uh, in any movie. Ever. 
Oh, for <laughs> sure. I mean, his character in that film is just a is so is one of my favorite Brad Pitt yeah. characters. Chad is just so much fun because <laughs> he's so dumb in like a puppy dog way. We but it's oh, shit. it's <laughs> appearances can be deceptive. <laughs> he's such an idiot. <laughs> he's such an idiot. It's really yeah. fun. Um, he also does that thing that smart actors do, which is like, I'm going to trust the filmmaker. Like, yeah. I'm not going to make it all about script. I'm going to, you know, and obviously script is important, but he, he's also like, I can trust myself with Quentin Tarantino. I can trust, you know, working with, uh, you know, Steve McQueen and making these movies, you know, getting films like 12 Years a Slave made, which he won the Oscar for, for best film, for producing well and even moneyball so he's a producer on moneyball steven soderbergh is directing moneyball based on a script that he wrote the movie is set to go into production on monday with sony on friday soderbergh turns in a new draft of the script which is wildly different from what he'd done before and when you see is it maybe it's the laundromat soderbergh did something recently that feels like oh this is what he was going to do with moneyball oh it's high flying bird that's it um, because yeah. he turned in the script on Friday for Moneyball and it had like actual baseball players in it with like interviews. So it was going to be like this mix between documentary and fiction. And Sony fired Soderbergh on the spot and postponed production. And to Brad Pitt's credit, obviously still a friend of Soderbergh's, doesn't quit the movie. He, you know, keeps it all together, gets Bennett Miller on board, uh, gets Aaron Sorkin and Steven Zalian to write to like write the screenplay not together but essentially just pass a draft like Steven Zalian would turn in a draft to Bennett Miller who would look it over and then give it to Sorkin who would then rewrite it who would give it to Bennett Miller who would then give it back to Steven Zalian um I mean that's impressive because that movie should have exploded <laughs> or Im- imploded that movie should have that movie should have imploded instead it was nominated for like a bunch yeah of including best picture and I think it's one of Pitt's yeah. best performances it is it's a really good film yeah. Um, yeah, he's just, I think it's like, we can't deny that Brad Pitt is a movie star, even in an age where like, we can talk about like, do movie stars matter? And I think, you know, Ad Astra came in third at the box office this week, um, this past weekend. And I think that's a testament to know a star cannot open any movie. It really is about IP because the number one at the box office this past weekend was Downton Abbey, a property that people recognized and liked. But I don't think that diminishes Brad Pitt's star power or what he represents or the fact that people would absolutely lose their shit if they, like, bumped into it. Like, Brad Pitt matters. He may not be able to just open any film, but that's because the business has changed, not because, you know, necessarily movie stars don't exist anymore. Um, And I think, you know, but to his credit, I think he's taking really interesting roles and working with interesting people. And I, I actually, you know... As much as I like him as an actor, I like him more as a producer because what he's doing as a producer is more impressive because he's using his star power and the power of Plan B, his production company, to fund films from other from voices that are not white men. Um, you know, they are the people, you know, again, it was 12 Years a Slave, but he also funded If Beale Street Could Talk. He funded Oakja. Uh, he funded, he was an executive producer on Moonlight. Like he's trying to use his production company to get interesting stuff. Made. Well, and also for the people who were like, oh, Brad Pitt couldn't produce 12 Years a Slave without putting himself in the movie. He did that so the movie would get made. That was part of the terms with the financiers to actually get the film made. Yeah, sometimes Brad Pitt has to show up in the film to get the movie yeah. money. Like, and look no further than... Sorry, sorry, sorry if I spoiled the magic of movie <laughs> making for you. Folks. Well, and, and I'd say, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Look at Moonlight, look at 
Beale Street, like he didn't have to be in those movies in order to get them made. And so he wasn't in them. So like that, I, I think that I, that conversation annoyed me that people were like, oh, Brad Pitt had to cast himself as the white savior. No, he didn't. Which, by the way, if you read the book 12 Years a Slave, that character exists in the book as well. It's not that they made it up to give Brad Pitt a part. That that Canadian guy who doesn't believe in slavery is in Solomon Northrop's yeah. story. So it's not – there aren't a lot of roles to – basically for Brad Pitt, he could give himself the Michael Fassbender role or the, <laughs> the, or the role of the of the Canadian guy. And he went – he said, man, you know what, Michael, you take this one. <laughs> or maybe the, the Cumberbatch role. Or the Cumberbatch role. But re- yeah, like there's really, there aren't that many roles and he gave himself the smallest one and he did it to get financing for the yeah. film. Um, yeah, I just, I really like what what Brad Pitt is doing through Plan B and the films that he's working to make. I think it's a company that's trying to make movies for adults and I think that's going to be harder and harder as time goes on. But he's still working at it. I mean, and they're doing television as well. I mean, they he was an executive producer on the OA, which is, I hear, one of the weirdest fucking shows of I believe all it's time. the OA. I had to correct you because they'll yell at you. So <laughs> Very chill. The OA, fine. Um, but he's also, you know, it, you know, they're making the Underground Railroad for Amazon with um, Barry Jenkins. Yeah, and that's so his company plan B, and obviously he's involved in some more than others uh dd gardner and mm-hmm. jeremy kleiner are um his two partners that helped produce those films and like i think he was very yeah. involved in moonlight um and possibly bill street but i don't think he's super involved in underground railroad so no i don't think so either um but it's just it's great that they're tor- they're working to try to get these projects yeah. made i think that's to me that that is a good use of power in hollywood and i i you know I I think we should take note and applaud people who use the success they've had to then help the next person up to kind of pay it forward. And you so you see that with you also see that with like Guillermo del Toro, who like is always trying to find new talent and try to promote them and give them, you know, a voice and try to, you know, if slapping his name on something helps it perform, he'll do it. Um, I think that that creates a difference between people who are like, I am the brand and the people who are like, yes, I'm a brand, but I'm going to use that to, to help new voices uh, rather than just keep everything to myself. Yeah. And yet I still hope he keeps acting because he's, he's so good in these two films that he made this year. Um, And it's, it feels like it's becoming fewer and further between. I mean, he was, he was offered the cable role in Deadpool two and turned it down, um, which ultimately I think it was probably a smart choice. And I never saw War Machine, but it seemed like that made absolutely no cultural impact. Nor did Allied. I think that's just him just wanting to work with David. Yeah. Showed. So it's really been since 2015 since he's been in like a big movie that made an impact, and that was The Big Short because Allied sure as hell didn't do anything. So. Yeah, um, but I'm. I'm, he, he's having quite yeah. a year. I mean, from the Oscar perspective, I don't think Ad Astra is going to do anything because, as we said, just voters won't notice it. But I think he definitely certainly has a shot for Best Supporting nomination for what And he's a doing time, everything right. Like, he's just – he's he's on the charm offensive on the press tour and he's super, like, self-affing. And, um, you know, there's no – you don't get the sense that the Oscar means a ton to him, but he's also not being super flippant about it. So that's kind of the perfect. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's hitting this fever pitch where it's like, Oh, like, you know, like you and I right now are enjoying looking back and talking. There's been ups and downs, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, 
unless they do something really horrific, like a Woody Allen, like, like, or Roman Polanski, like, I don't really care about the personal lives of, of, of actors or directors. I just don't because yeah, yeah. I still feel you're not really learning yeah, that much in sure. the same respect. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, uh, if you haven't seen Ad Astra, definitely go see it. I, I really, it is one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. I was just really floored by it. And it, I think the more I think about it, the more I like it. I think it is yeah. definitely one of my yeah, favorite Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. And in case you were wondering, cinema score was B minus. Uh, not pretty bad, oh, but not as bad. bad as I was thinking it would be. Not, not, not <laughs> killing them softly add. bad. <laughs> How how did that movie get an F when its message is fuck America? <laughs> I should add that uh, in my theater, seeing at Astra, someone brought their baby to the movie. Well, the baby yeah. likes at least it, Brad Pitt. Obviously. At least it's an action-filled don't. movie that will keep them interested and engaged on screen. Of course, no, don't, don't bring do your babies to a movie. <laughs> like even if it's a, like if it's even if it's a kid's, don't bring a baby to a movie. There's no like. If you if you can't get a sitter, you're not. You know what? The movie will be there. I it will be available yeah. to you, for you to watch at home in like three months. Don't be that selfish. You can wait. Come on. Ninety days. Come on. Don't be that guy, or that bur- or that woman. Who cares? I, I, you, both <laughs> genders can be equally assholes yeah. when it comes to bringing a baby to a movie. Um, okay. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to reader hot takes, uh, which we recorded last week, but it didn't work. It didn't pick up because we had recording issues again. But we've before we recorded this episode, we did a test run and the software worked. So I'm feeling confident that we will get this on tape. Uh, what, so what do we Will have, Elkerton Adam, for reader says, hot takes? Uh, here's a hot take for you. I didn't like Late Night. I thought it was boring. Outside of a terrific performance from Emma Thompson, of course, Mindy Kaling is a supporting player in her own movie. Another hot take, Isn't It Romantic, is a one-joke movie, and it's not that funny of a joke. That movie is also bad. Cheers, Omar. Um, I would say, like, here's my thing about Late Night, is that I loved it coming out of Sundance. And it is, a, I saw it again when it hit theaters and it's just a film that's kind of faded on me. I don't hate it. Um, I don't think Mindy, K- it's Mindy Kaling's movie. It's Emma Thompson's movie. Mindy Kaling just wrote a supporting role for herself. That's what it is. Um, and I think Emma Thompson is great, but I think, I don't think late night is the worst. It just didn't stay with me. It's a, it's a fluffy rom-com in the bottom. Yeah, I was, the I, I enjoyed it at Sundance, but I wasn't over the moon about it. Uh, I haven't seen it again since. Uh, I think it's fine. I think it's entirely fine that Mindy Kaling is a supporting player because she wrote it that way. Uh, and I think Emma Thompson is really fantastic in it. But I, it didn't make a, a super lasting impression on me. Like, I, I don't necessarily think it's something that it, I'm going to be re- revisiting. Uh, although I think it's probably kind of in line with the kinds of movies that Amazon wants to make and put on its streaming service. So uh, in that regard, it's probably a success. Uh, my fiance liked it. She enjoyed it, so for what it's worth. Um, yeah, I thought it was fine. I didn't necessarily think it was boring. but And isn't it romantic? I also think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's also fine. I like it's. I thought uh, Todd Strauss-Schulson is good at taking genre tropes and remixing them into a sort of a, a, a quirky little parody. He did it for the Final Girls and Slasher films. I think... Uh, isn't it romantic is, is charming for what it is. Again, neither, I have really no desire to ever like revisit those films, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed, yeah. uh, I enjoyed them all. Uh, the next reader hot take comes with Royale ripoff, uh, who says hot take. The man who felt earth is a near masterpiece. Since I know Matt hates it. 
<laughs> Here goes. <laughs> and goes on to uh, uh, talk about the movie in spoilers, um, which I won't do uh, for people who haven't seen it, like me. But Matt, what is your take on The Man Who Fell to Earth? I think I need to give it another shot. Do you I, hate um, it, though? I... <laughs> uh, you're too, too long to hate, answer hate is I'm such a strong it. word hate is such a strong word it reminded me a lot of um a film that i saw recently that reminded me of man who fell to earth was under the skin um which is like again it's sort of that sort of scythe it's an alien who feels alienated um and i just it's a it, it's just it's a very i think david bowie is perfect in the role but it's a film that I feel like you have to be in the right mood for. Because if you're feeling tired or if you're just like, you have to be like, I am here to watch Man Who Fell to Earth. Let's fucking do this. Because um, it it was very, it's, it's very slow. It's very, you know, cerebral. And there are some people who, who are very much on that wavelength. And sometimes I'm on that wavelength. Um, but... When I saw it, I was just like, "This is gonna. This movie's gonna last forever. <laughs> this this movie has no has no real plot. It doesn't really have much character. It's all sort of. It's kind of a think piece. This could last forever. Um, and that's so. Yeah. I, I didn't really. Click I uh, haven't seen it, but I plan to at some point. So, yeah, I think it's on Criterion Channel. To be honest, most I think. Yeah, you know, I could check on that. <laughs> it is. Who knows. But anyway, yeah, Man Who Fell to Earth. I wouldn't say like you know avoid Man Who Fell to Earth. I would just say it didn't, it didn't really work for me. So that's that's my my Fair. thought on that movie. Um, it is not on Criterion, but you should watch it anyway. It, there is a Criterion edition of it. Um, Those okay. are all the hot tips uh, we have. It? So send us more. Yeah, please. We will we will engage with them on the on the show. All right. Um, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Adam Twitter. Chip. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.